So this morning we are continuing our summer stop through the book of Proverbs. And we basically started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're continuing through uh, for a couple more weeks. This brings us to chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs. This morning we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12. So if you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. And the word of God reads, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that is in your word, which we need. Lord, once and once again, our wisdom, our allegiance will be tested by what we do with our wealth, by who we honor or what we honor. I ask, Lord, that you may, through your Holy Spirit, give us understanding, give us conviction, so that these things could be corrected in our thinking in our hearts, in our lifestyles, in order to be right with you and to be right with men. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll be seated. So last week, I had the opportunity to preach in Proverbs 3, right? The passage right before this, 1 through 8. And we basically talked about who do we trust in. That's an aspect of knowing and seeing who we really trust. And having to redirect ourselves to trusting God. That was last week's service, right? This message today I've titled, Honor, Wealth, and Reproof. That's what the passage before us speaks about. Now this reminded me as I was preparing for the sermon, a uh, little bit of a humorous illustration, but there's a point to it, bear with me. So there was a Christian who had invited his friend to come to church over and over and one of the reasons why the friend wouldn't come is because he would say you know I, I don't want to go to any church because all they care about is talk about money so I don't want to go there and be preached about money you know they're greedy they take people's money etc etc that's that's a common objection right to somebody not wanting to go to church or not wanting to deal with the church so finally lo and behold this beloved friend accepted the invitation to come to church. And guess what the topic was that very day? Money, <laughs> Money right? <laughs> so I have to say that God really has a sense of humor. So that's an example of, of how God may deal with some people. But in any case, uh, part of the sermon today, it is talking about wealth, about money. And I just want to clarify that God does not need your money, and neither will Acts Reformed Church ever beg for that money, right? That's not what we're here for. Uh, those that do come forth with offerings, um, we know as a church, especially if you're a member here, there's no promises back of God is going to give you twofold or up to a hundredfold. There's no promises of that. We denounce all forms of prosperity gospel theology. That is not what we're about. But in any case, just want to get that out of the way. Um, and then I just want to mention that we do expository preaching. That is, we choose a book, we go through it, and 
what you're listening to right now is because that's what's next in the text. And we are to be honoring God's word. And that's what, by God's grace, I will be preaching on today. So we do expository preaching in this sequential. Whatever's next, that's what we're going to do. So this passage begs our attention to be turned into how we think, how we examine, how we manage our wealth. Whether we honor God in doing so, and whether we listen to reproof to somebody that may call us out when the time is appropriate, right? Because that too has to be done in, in wisdom. If somebody does call us out, how do we react to a reproof that is done in the Lord? And many of us may think, oh God, you know, he's going to discipline me. He's got to come and, and mess up the system I have going here for my life or for my lifestyle. It's, it's no fun. But as we will see, God's discipline is always a way for him to remind us that we are his children and that he loves us and that he corrects us in doing so. I remember, I think I mentioned this before, one of the times that I've, I've reproved my son physically is when we were in a restaurant and out of the blue he just ran outside into the parking lot and there was a big truck coming. So I chased him and thankfully I was able to grab him and I spanked him. He needs to know that that is an absolutely no-go. You cannot ever do that because your life is in danger. And as I did that, I saw a man and, and a woman, a couple looking, and the young man comes up to me and he says, hey man, he says, I can tell that you love your son. Right? I thought he was going to like accuse me to child protective services or something. <laughs> he actually said, I can tell that you love your son. right? Because if we love our kids, especially when they're in such grave danger, we're going to make it known that, son, you cannot do that. Your life is in danger. Amen. Because I love my son. Not because I want to ruin his fun. Because he thought that was fun. He was laughing as he did it, right? <laughs> So in like manner, when God disciplines us, it is a way in which God is saying, I am your father and you are my son. I love you. Listen. Pay attention to instruction. That is the tone in which specifically this chapter of Proverbs is, re is, is read. It's a, a father speaking to a loving son. Son, listen to me. And as we saw last week, this instruction is repetitive. It's something that perhaps the son has already heard, but that the father feels the need to repeat. Right? And as I mentioned, how many times, also was that our parents, how many times do we have to repeat instruction to our kids? Once? No, it's not enough. We need to repeat instruction to our kids over and over. Okay? So with that, as we think about this passage, Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 12, let us think about this theme and ask ourselves a couple of questions. How do I manage the blessings, the finances, the wealth, the resources that God has given me? Do I honor God with them? And when was the last time that I actually experienced correction? Either by God letting us suffer the own consequences of our choices, or by a brother and sister in Christ calling to our attention that we're actually straying. We're, we're not 
following the path of God in the way that we manage our resources. And I like to mention that this, calling each other out in Christ with wisdom, with love, is part of Christian fellowship. If we hang out and we have great meals and we talk about the things that we all agree, that's great. But unless we are turning to each other in courageous and faithful rebuke so that we can turn to God, we will not be having true fellowship. The life of fellowship includes being able to point each other to Christ. And that very often requires reproof, correction, calling somebody out. If we don't do that, we may even be disobedient to God's word and in a way that God wants to discipline us, to instruct us, to reprove us. So that's a very important aspect of Christian fellowship, part of our sanctification, the day-by-day -day living and coming closer and closer to how Christ really is. So, as we study this passage, let's keep those questions in mind. Basically, what does the way you spend your money and do with your resources say about who you really are? It's basically how it's summed up. So let's take a look at the first verse here, verse 9 of chapter 3. And what we'll be looking at here is, do we, do you honor God with what you have? The verse reads, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So let's take a look at what these words mean, right? Honor, what, is, what does that mean, right? We talk about honor, like somebody has honor or giving honor to someone. The way it is used here is to weigh heavily upon, to acknowledge as of first importance, to honor. Something holds a place of honor. Honor God with your wealth. And then wealth, what's wealth? Well, as described here in the Hebrew, it could be money, it could be material possessions, but also resources. Like everything that is at your disposal that God has blessed you with. And then first fruits, that's the first and best. That's language that is used often of farming, right? It would be familiar to the, the initial audience that would read this text. And the modern equivalent of first fruits would be the first return on investment of a job, a business, a, a gig that you have. What do you do with that first paycheck? Right? Do you give God the honor and place he deserves of thanksgiving? Or is it just like, oh, I'm so good. All right, move on to the next one, right? What is our attitude? So we are to take our money and possessions and weigh them heavily then upon our minds and our hearts to know and to acknowledge that this comes from God. Thank you, Lord, for this, right? That's, that should be the attitude. That's how honoring God begins. Now, a quick warning as we look at passages in Scripture that talk about wealth and money and riches. Some of us may be very quick to say, well, I don't have to worry about that because I don't have any wealth. So let that person or that person worry about it because I don't have wealth. I think it was last year when I preached a sermon when we were going through uh, the Gospel of Mark that I quoted some statistics of surveys that have been done about whether people think that they're wealthy. And essentially what it ended up saying is that nobody really thinks that they're wealthy. 
because they always look to somebody else and say, well, I'm not really wealthy. I don't have much resources, but I know somebody that does. Right? So when we come across these things in Scripture, like for instance, like Jesus said, it's, it's really tough for rich men to get to heaven, right? Because well, I'm not rich, so I don't have that problem. But if we're to take anything from this message is that when, this, when the Bible speaks about riches and the love of riches keeping you from the kingdom of God or that you should honor God with your wealth, it is talking about me. It's talking about you. It's not talking about your neighbor or somebody that you know. It's talking about us. This is addressed to us. Because all of us have treasures, times, and talents. The resources that we have at our disposal, and what are we going to do with them? If we fall into the trap and think this is not for us, or you know what, maybe when I have a little more, I will be sharing with my resources. That time is never going to come. I guarantee you. So, a quick example of wealthy people in the Bible who honor God with their money. Old Testament, Solomon, he asked God for wisdom. And God was so pleased with the attitude of Solomon that he only gave him wisdom. He gave him money. Right? He gave vast amount of wealth. And by and large, Solomon honored God. Far from being a perfect man, he had his defects, right? But it's a good example of how God blessed someone. Then some examples in the New Testament. Lydia, in Acts 16, she was a well-to-do woman that hosted one of the very first churches in her local town, in her home. She opened up her home. What is the lesson there? That our resources in our homes can be used to accomplish God's purpose. She opened up her house so that the church could meet. Joseph of Arimathea, also in the New Testament, he had basically prepaid his funeral arrangements. And he was the one who donated a very nice tomb in order for Jesus to be laid in. In those three days that Jesus was in, in the tomb. The lesson we learned there is that forsaking treasures on earth can have a great impact in the kingdom of God. Now, if this person had not donated his tomb, God would still have done something in order to make that happen. Nevertheless, Joseph being able to open that and sharing of what he had played a great role. How many times we talk about the resurrection? That's the heart of the gospel, right? Amen. A person like you and I donated what he had so that Jesus could be laid there. Think about that. And then, let us not forget the Roman centurion who believed in Luke chapter 7. He was very generous to the people of God. He paid for a building of a synagogue. Right. And he showed compassion to one of his servants who was also sick. The lesson we can learn from that is, when we love God, it will necessarily show in the projects that we invest and in how we treat others that are in need. Right? And then a couple of examples about those that did not honor God with their wealth and possessions in Scripture. Matthew 19, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and asks him, like, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? And basically, he was unwilling to part with his wealth. That was a price too high to pay for him. He took off. He couldn't do it. He didn't pass the test. The lesson there is a little bit obvious, right? Clinging to wealth 
will prevent you from entering, from seeing the kingdom of God. That righteousness that is required cannot be obtained by clinging to your wealth. It must be received as a gift. Last but not least, one more example, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. What did they do? They sold a piece of land. And here's the interesting thing. They actually gave. Right? They didn't withhold. They actually gave. But they were dishonest in the way they reported it and in the way they made it seem to the church. What did God do? Holy Spirit. Want to talk about slaving the Spirit? Gone. Killed them. Right? So that's a big warning for us because we could put on a show to say, hey, I'm generous. I give. But even then, there's a warning of you're just doing it to check a box or to give a show. But God knows the heart. So with that, a question that we should ask ourselves is, given its examples from Scripture, like maybe where in that scale and that where in that uh, in that line do I fall? Am I generous with what I have? And remember, there's no cop out by saying, "Well, I don't have much, so I can't answer that." Nope. Am I generous with what I have? If you take inventory of what you've done with your money in the last few months or year, you will know whether you are generous with your resources and whether you are honoring God with it. And let's get a little bit more insight on that as we proceed to the next verse. So what happens when God is honored with our wealth and our possessions? Verse 10 says, Your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. So when God is honored, we are being told that God will provide for His people. Okay, God will provide for His people when He is honored. A couple of things on what this does not mean. It does not mean that you will say, all right, God, fine, I'll do something for you, but you got to have my back, right? You're going to do something for me. It's not what it means. God does not need anything from us, from you, to, for you to do something for him. He doesn't need that. God is perfect and holy and complete in all of his attributes. God can never be in any sort of debt towards you or me. Another thing is that it does not mean it does not mean is that we will live a life of comfort, right? If if I do this for God, he's going to give me comfort, he's going to give me wealth, he's going to make sure that I have everything I want. As a matter of fact, most people who serve God wholeheartedly for their whole lives do not live in luxury and comfort. Do not now, God may grant that to us, to you, because of His grace. But that does not mean that He will. And if He does, then we have even a bigger responsibility to manage our resources well. The standard goes up if He does bless you. So what does it mean then? If it's not a God, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. If it does not mean that we're going to be in luxury, then what does it mean? Well, it means that God is going to provide what you need. It's very different than from what I want. Philippians 4.15 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
God will supply every need. Not every want, every need. And before that, Paul sets up that chapter in verse 6 when he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And that's the context of, of that statement there. So God will provide what you need when you ask Him. Right? When we ask God for something, are we asking for something that we want for our own selfish gain or comfort or luxury? Or are we asking God to graciously provide what we need? Those two things can be different. Need versus want. God says you will have what you need. Another thing that it does mean is that you will be at peace. It's very important. You will be at peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding, as Scripture says, comes through trust in God. And very often this trust has to do with what am I going to do if I don't have a job, if I don't have money, if I don't have food, if I don't have a, a home? The what ifs, right? What's going to happen? That brings anxiety, that brings stress. Or it could be a little bit worse than that. It could be, what if others don't think highly of me? What if I cannot maintain the lifestyle and the image that I've shown to others of who I want to be? Right? If I don't have money, I'm not going to be able to do that. Not maintaining the lifestyle and image that you've tried to build for yourself for so long. And those pursuits will bring you zero peace, none. You will always want more. Somebody else is always going to make you look less. Zero peace. But trusting in God is going to be the peace that you need, knowing that you actually get Christ. His peace, His righteousness, His forgiveness. And that because God is loving Father, He's going to give you what you need. That's going to bring peace. Some of the greatest saints in history great men and women of God have not been rich. Have actually lived, relatively speaking, in what we would say, dirt poor conditions. And yet, their fulfillment, their peace, was way more than any riches could have ever brought them. So in this way, in which we say that the scripture here tells us you will have plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is language indicating that honoring God will end up in having your needs met. And the satisfaction that ultimately will fill you is the fact that you don't really get material or financial gain, but that you get Christ. That's the ultimate filled with plenty that Scripture speaks about. In 1 Timothy 2.6, it says that Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Right? Jesus given himself. Matthew 20, 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So honoring God will be trusting in him. He's going to meet our needs, and then we actually get Christ. We get Jesus. It's not about, well, okay, I'm going to do this. That way God can give me what I want. No. As a matter of fact, you might even get disciplined if you try to do that. Ultimately, we get Jesus. We get his righteousness. 
His forgiveness. As Philippians 1.29 says, that we obtain a righteousness that is not our own, but is the righteousness of Jesus. So now let's talk about a little bit about discipline, correction, in the context of being a son or a daughter. Verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or beware of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So here's talking about despising the Lord's discipline. The language used means that somebody has disgust or anger towards discipline. Right? Many of us don't like to be disciplined. And then what is discipline? It's training in order to make right, exhortation, warning, with an emphasis on, don't do that, it's not going to be right, it's not going to be good for you. Rather do this, right? Discipline. And then reproof. What is reproof? That's correction. That's rebuke. In modern terms, that's being called out. Somebody calls you out, you're out of line. Reproof. What does scripture says about those who listen to correction and discipline and those who don't? In the same book of Proverbs 12.1, it says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15.32 says, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. One more, Proverbs 15.5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever hates reproof is prudent. 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 I've made it a point lately to teach my, my daughter about prudence. And in the terms that I explained it to her so that she can understand it is, my daughter, when you're doing something, think about it. Think is this going to bring righteousness? Is it going to bring good? Is this going to cause harm? Or is this going to be honorable? Is it going to be good? And yesterday when something came up, we were riding the car. I asked her something and she answered me and asked her why and she says because that would be prudent daddy that's why I praise God she's learning to think not to just on impulse go for what we want scripture says the fool does that but if we listen to instruction we are being prudent we're listening to reproof now I'd like to focus now on a commentary that the New Testament gives on this very passage about God's discipline and reproof. It tells us basically that discipline and correction takes place not because somebody's doing everything right, but because somebody's going astray. Somebody's going, it's going the wrong way. And it has everything to do with being disobedient, being sinful, disobeying God's truth. So let us take a look at what the commentary says, and then we'll make a few comments about it. If you have a Bible, just turn to Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 17. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. It's a bit long of a passage, but I think it provides basically the Bible commenting on its own content. So it's the best way to do it, right? And I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. It says, <clears throat> Consider him who endured 
from sinners such hostility as him, against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary of when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful and rather unpleasant, rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is slain may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See it? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Right? A little bit of a long passage, but nevertheless, let's make some observations. That is very rich in wisdom. The author of Hebrews is looking back to Proverbs and saying, this is what it's telling you. Pay attention, right? What do we learn? It says that discipline takes takes place due to struggle with sin, breaking of God's law. A lot of times people don't want to talk about sin, right? It's like taboo. And I always say, the definition of sin is relatively simple. In the language the Bible uses to describe sin is like if you're shooting with archery, there's a target, you get a shot at it, you go and you miss it. Okay, sin. That's all it means. You miss the mark. God has set a particular mark, and we've all missed it. That's what sin is, missing the mark that God has set. So that's where discipline happens. And then it says that God disciplines his sons and daughters. So if I keep getting away with sin again and again and again and again, and I see no discipline, that's a huge red flag. Because that means and I be son of God. He's not disciplining me. I'm getting away with it for now. Even though we may suffer the consequences of our sin in our disobedient lifestyle, it does not necessarily mean that God is disciplining me. Right? So let's be careful. If we're getting away with what we're doing, that means we might not be God's children. God does not let sin go unpunished. 
Another thing we see is that earthly fathers are not perfect. Yet, earthly fathers discipline kids, right? Just like the example I give of my son running out into the parking lot and was being ran over. I disciplined him because I love him. And yet, I'm imperfect. I did it in anger when I did it. Even though it was the right move, I still did it in anger. We are sinful. And the commentary on the scripture here is telling us if we, as sinful, imperfect fathers, do discipline and do things for discipline out of love, how much more will God discipline us? Because God's discipline is perfect. The discipline that God gives us is in perfect faithfulness to His righteous character. There's nothing wrong that God can do by disciplining us. So as God's children then, we will not get away with sin. And the question is, should I repent now or should I be wait to be found out in my sin? Discipline, real good. And then we see that discipline is uncomfortable, but it will produce life. Discomfort of discipline will later produce life. Because the purpose of discipline from a father to a son is to produce restoration, healing, reconciliation, peace, love, godly character. And that's not comfortable, it's going to hurt. Discipline also tells us that by discipline, we may share in God's holiness. It's very important. God's correction yields, it says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This goes against sin, right? Pride, sexual morality, like it mentions here. Chasing after any of those lust or passions or money or what have you will not bring peace. It only bring despair. So the discipline, remember, is so that we can attain the holiness that we need in order to come to God. Right? If we take a second point from the sermon, let that be it. First, God doesn't need my money. I'm not going to do something and He's going to have my back. No. Secondly, ultimately, honoring God with our possessions and submitting to God's discipline, correcting our ways, is so that we may attain the holiness that is needed in order to be restored in a relationship with God. More on that in a little bit. So then God's correction, His rebuke and discipline, so that we become holy, it means that we should repent, turn away from sin, submit to Jesus. If we come out of a trial and we just say, that was a close one. Even during the trial, many of us will be quick to make deals with God, right? Oh, Lord, if you get me out of this one, like I promise, I'm going to be upright and fill in the blank, right? But as soon as we're out of that trial, we're like, ah, man, that, was, that was a close one, but now back to whatever I was doing. If we waste those trials, we will have learned nothing about God's discipline. Because He requires correction, repentance, turn away from what you're doing pursue him instead another thing we see here is that we will not be able to dwell with God to see God without that holiness and what I meant earlier when I said I would come back to this is that that holiness that we need even in our, on our best day on our best week we cannot reach the holiness that is required it is demanded but yet 
The standard is so high that we're never going to be able to get it. Without that holiness, we cannot see God. That holiness cannot be attained by effort, merit, checking the boxes, etc. Because it is God who has to intervene in order for us to have that holiness. So again, repent, believe, trust in Christ. And then His righteousness, the righteousness that you and I need, is credited to us. So that now we can come to God. And now we can seek obedience and peace with God in our path of being a Christian. path of sanctification. But before that, we cannot be a children of God if we don't have that holiness. And that holiness, don't forget, is not your holiness. It's the holiness of Christ that is going to be able to pay the price needed to be right with God the Father. And then we see that foolishness will prevent us from taking and learning from God's discipline. So we can take that. We cannot be foolish. We have to submit to Jesus. And if we do experience God's discipline, if we really suffer the consequences of our foolish and sinful actions, it is because God loves you. If you keep getting away with it over and over and over and over, that should be a huge red flag. I'm not even right with God. I have no remorse. I have no conviction. So then, what we have to say then about honoring God with our possessions, about listening to His instruction, His rebuke, not being foolish about it. We have a few of, of these applications that we can close with. And that is the first one. Whether we're Christian or not, the way that we view and use money will tell a lot about who you are. The way you manage your wealth. The things that you do have. For the Christian, for those that do claim to be Christians, then is with the purpose of repenting and realigning our way of thinking about money. So that we can then honor God in everything we do. With our money, our resources, our talents, our treasures. For the non-Christian, the issue is not that you have something and you're not honoring God with it. Sure, that's part of it, but that's not the major thing. For the person that is not a Christian, the major issue here is that first, that God doesn't need your money. He has everything he needs. But rather, that Jesus is not your Savior. That's the main issue. So you're not a child of God. And then, the issue there is we must repent of our current lifestyle, trust in Christ. His righteousness is put to your account. Now you obtain that holiness. God sees you as a son. And then you'll begin the path of honoring God with your life, with your finances, with your home, etc., etc. But first, you must be a child of God. And that comes through trusting in Christ. Another application, why is the Bible always talking about money, possessions, what people do with them? That's a constant theme throughout the scripture, right? And it's, like I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, something that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Oh, I don't want to go to church because all they want is talk about money and they want my money, right? Remember the disclaimer, Acts Reformed Church doesn't need your money, God, let alone God, it will never need your money. 
But why is it that Scripture talks about that so much? Honor, wealth, reproof in the context of the sermon is because we constantly seek self-honor. Look at me. Look at who I am. Look what I built. Self-honor. And typically that is associated with those that are preserving their wealth and increasing in wealth. Right? Self-esteem based on what you possess. So I'm seeking self-honor and I'm seeking to retain and increase my wealth, my status. And then, not only do we do that in a self-serving way, but we often seek to reprove those that are disagreeing with what I'm doing. They don't like what I'm doing, so I'm going to reprove them. I'm going to tell them how they are wrong. So then, we're honoring ourselves. We're seeking to keep wealth and increase it for our own selfish gain. And we're pretty much telling everybody who disagrees with what I'm doing to go away. Right? Honor, wealth, reproof. And when we take inventory of what we have done with our money, it reveals who we are. It tells us what we value most. Is it comfort, social status, financial security, pride of self-accomplishment? What is it? And you don't need to have a lot of money in order to experience this sinful attitude. So then the question comes, will you honor God with what He has given you and trust that He will provide for whatever it is that you need? Do you need financial security? Do you need comfort? Do you need respect of fellow men when they see your lifestyle? If you do, all that comes to a price, with a price. And that price is that by you chasing after that and clinging to that, you are refusing Jesus. Right? You are preferring those things rather than to Jesus. So you don't listen to correction. Rather, you want to correct others who disagree. And you will not listen to God's discipline. Because you love to do what you're doing. Self-honor, seeking your own wealth, and reproving those who disagree with you. And that tells us the real state of our heart. And that's why scripture constantly talks about that. About not seeking treasures on earth, but in heaven. So then what are some ways in which we can honor God with our wealth? Well, first of all, acknowledge that all resources, whether you're a Christian or not, it's God's common grace. All of your resources, anything that you have, it is because God has graciously granted it to you. James 1, 16 and 17 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then, again, for the Christian and the non-Christian, if you're a Christian, you have to use your resources to advance God's kingdom through His church, primarily. And then, you have to provide for others when there's a need. First, as Galatians says, for those that are within the household of God. And then we ought to also provide for those that are outside, using discernment and good judgment. So that we're not helping somebody run a scam, right? Those are some ways that we can honor God with our wealth. And then God is not passive when it comes to discipline. He will discipline his children. 
not forget that. God will correct you. And then lastly here, God's discipline may come through rough circumstance, very often, like I said, because of the sinful choices we've done. Or it comes from instruction and rebuke via Scripture, God's Word. The Bible tells us that the Bible, God's Word, will rebuke us, it will instruct us. It will point us to where we would go. We should go rather than where we're going. God's Word rebukes us. And through exhortation from your church family, from fellow Christians. Remember, true fellowship requires us to point each other to Christ, point us to repentance. That's what we're here for. That's part of what we're here for as a church. So with that, then let us ask ourselves as we close, what have I done with my wealth, with the resources that I have at my disposal? Have I listened to God's instruction? And then so far, the choices I've made in life, where have they brought me? Do I have anything to show for it? Have the choices I've made in life thus far been according to God, to what God wants from me? Now, if we're honest, each of us can acknowledge that we've fallen short. Some of us fall way short. But there's hope. We cannot live here without hope. The hope we need is not in, all right, I'm going to try better. Ah, this time I really mean it, I'm going to do good. Nope, because you're going to fail again. Guilty as charged, I've tried it. Fall again. So it's not in doing better, per se, but it's in trusting the one who has perfect wisdom the one who lived a perfect life, the one who obeyed and submitted to every command, the one who honored God the Father in every word and every deed, every deed that he ever committed. Let us direct our hearts to Jesus, to him, the only one who can give us a new heart, a new mind, new desires, the desire to honor God, even if we struggle. The one that will change our motives so that we want to honor God. So that when we do utilize our possessions to honor God, it'll actually count for something because we are in the family of God. And ultimately, that is the way in which we're going to have peace with each other and peace with God through Christ, the one who has been honorable and honored God the Father always. The one who has the holiness with which we cannot come to God. He's the one who has that ultimate holiness that we need. As we think about this, am I honoring God my well? What have I done? Do I listen to instruction? Varying degrees of that answer for each one, each one of us. But we have to know that. None of us have done it perfectly. But we can trust in the one that has, and that's Jesus, so that we can have peace with God and peace with each other. That's our big hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, who has obeyed perfectly for Jesus, who is the one that 
has the righteousness that we need in order to be right with Him. Lord, you don't need our wealth. You don't need our, our resources. Nevertheless, what we do with those resources is indicative of whether we know you or not. It's indicative of whether we do love you or not. Lord, redirect our hearts and our minds to trust in you, to repent, so that we can have the holiness of Christ. May your Holy Spirit convict us. May your Holy Spirit teach us the passage that we've talked today in regards to wealth, honor, and reproof. That we would be reproved, that we would listen, that we would not be foolish, Lord. That we would submit to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.